and good morning and welcome to The Skinny for Friday, August 25th. I'm Mitch Perry, senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined in studio by Ray Roa, the creative loafing editor-in-chief. And joining us uh, via Zoom is freelance reporter Ben Montgomery, the third of our three partners here. Great to have, I was going to say, great to have us all back in the studio, but Ben yeah, is not here. Uh, are you feeling but, better? Uh, I am, definitely. Even though I sound a little congested right now, I'm absolutely great. Uh, ben, you there? Yeah. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Ray. How you guys doing? Morning, morning. Where are you, Ben? I'm sitting in a Starbucks parking lot in Franconia, New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> Going to do a little more hiking of the White Mountains before I have to drop uh, Asher off at college and head back to Florida. I miss you guys, though. Yeah, well, great to have you here via Zoom. Uh, so later in the show, we'll tell our listeners we're going to be talking about a new political action committee launched to exclusively back political candidates under the age of 35 running for federal office and under 30 running for state legislative office. And that's being headed by gun safety advocate David Hogg. We'll speak to him later in the show. But first, a big development this week in Pinellas County. The Pinellas Suncoast Transit Authority, or PSTA, voted this week to begin charging the full $2.25 to ride the Sunrunner Rapid Bus Service starting on October 1st. That's a month earlier than scheduled. Why? Well, the agency bumped up the timeline after receiving complaints, which they took seriously, about unhoused people using the Sunrunner to visit St. Peach Beach, harassing some allegedly members of the public. I want to give a quote here from Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Gautieri. He says, quote, the shoppers were being accosted. They were being hit up. They were being harassed. We started getting complaints about people sleeping on the, be- the beach. We're getting complaints from families. That is not okay. As you're walking down the beach access and there are showers there where you can rinse off your feet when you can come off the sand and there are people there naked, urinating and defecating when they're trying to take their kids off the beach. That's not okay. So it was a huge quality of life and public safety issue. So that is what we were hearing. He's again, went on, he said we're hearing complaints from the tourists. And so PSTA reacted to that. For more on this, let's kick it over to Ray, who's going to introduce our guest. Yeah. So Mitch, as, as you mentioned, so the Wednesday before last week's show, we got a tip uh, about the St. Pete Beach Commission talking about this stuff. Um, so uh, you mentioned the Sunrunner for the Uninitiated. It goes from downtown St. Pete to St. Pete Beach and back. Uh, PSTA says it's nearing 1 million riders. Um, Ariel Steve uh, picked up that tip and went back to that meeting. And what she heard were uh, St. Pete Beach constituents and elected officials um, voicing concerns about, as you alluded to, what city leaders called a rise in crime and issues with unhoused residents coming to the beach due to the free fares. Um, Chris Marone, a St. Pete Beach city commissioner, said it's the buses and who they're bringing in. And the sheriff, Bob Gultieri, who you mentioned, said we cannot just pick these people up and drive them somewhere and drop them off. We're not allowed to do that. We can't and make their lives miserable. That's all we can do is pester them. They used to not be here, these troublemakers, and they're here now. Skip, and I, I don't know if we can play um, a, a little bit of a clip um, from that meeting. Uh, this is the commissioners discussing um, that issue there. So this is the August 8th meeting um, of the St. Pete Beach Commission, uh, where some of the constituents started to... Um, all right, we might pull it up uh, later here. Um, so after that meeting, Mitch, uh, PSTA CEO Brad Miller sent an email. Okay, we got that. We got that meeting. PSTA is going to take some actions. Here's the, the you know the root of the problem. We all know what it is. The sheriff told us. I, I don't know what the root it, of the problem is. It is the it is the buses. It is the buses and who they're bringing in. And he said we cannot just pick these people up and drive them somewhere and drop them off. We're not allowed to do that. We can make their lives miserable, is what he said. But we can't trespass them from public property unless they're violating the law. 
So we can trespass from private property if the owner's willing to issue a trespass warning and then they trespass after warning. So he said, we have to basically make their lives miserable, which is, what are you doing here, sir? Where are you going? Or do you need some assistance? But that's all we can do is pester them. They used to not be here, these troublemakers. They're here now. And I've talked to a, a couple other deputies. So that's a little clip from the meeting there. So in the wake of that meeting, the CEO of PSTA, uh, Brad Miller, sent an email proposing that on August 21st, the service would implement a 50 cent fare for the Grand Central bus hub and all the Sunrunner stops westbound towards uh, the beach. Brad Miller's email said that he hoped the fare would help in, quote, reducing the number of homeless individuals who are using it to access the beach to illegally sleep there at night and other times causing problems. Um, St. Petersburg Ken Welch, Ken Welch sent a letter over to PSCA, said that he um, had some concerns about uh, the approach, both in terms of its effectiveness and equity. Um, he said, I believe that a better understanding of the scope and impact of the problem is needed and share that in my phone calls, uh, voice messages with uh, Miller and the sheriff. Um, so, But Miller had to change course. He was um, advised to seek approval from the PSTA board and sent another email saying the issue would be discussed at a meeting that happened two days ago here on, on Wednesday. Day. And um, as you alluded to, Mitch, at the meeting, uh, Goltieri made many claims about houses, people, and their behavior um, on the beach. He listed off a litany of um, statistics about uh, calls for service um, and whatnot around there. But he also said that crime in St. Beach, uh, St. P. Beach isn't up. Uh, he said St. P. Beach overall is a safe place. And he called this social crime uh, related to chronic um, homelessness population. So this meeting obviously was highly attended. Um, the reporting says, uh, it was over three hours long, standing room only, um, additional 279 in attendance. Yeah, and it got um, maximum coverage in the media. Uh, it was, it was, well it was everywhere. And, and one thing about the fair that's being Im- implemented here, the fair was supposed to start in November, as you said, is um, you can only pay contactless. So debit, credit card, there are these Flamingo fair cards. Those will be um, um, accepted. And the motion that also passed, it was a motion from PSTA board member Renee Flowers, uh, who asked that all concerned entities related to the issue get together uh, to discuss some long-term um, solutions. As you mentioned, many homeowners and business owners wanted that fair um, immediately, but there were a lot of voices that spoke out. One of them, Andy Oliver, uh, pastor from St. Pete's Allendale Methodist, um, said that this reduced fare might have gone unnoticed um, had the commissioner from St. Pete Beach not said what he said. Um, Andy Oliver said, you said the quiet part loud. Um, he invoked Catron versus City of St. Petersburg. I don't know if people remember that 2011 case in which the city lost to uh, homeless people suing over uh, the unconstitutional city ordinance aimed at trespassing them from Williams Park. Um, another voice who came to the dais was Homeless Leadership Alliance of Pinellas CEO uh, Dr. Monica Alesnik. Uh, I think Dr. Alesnik is with us right now. Are you there? I am here. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for joining us today. You were, you were there um, at the meeting, doctor, and uh, you said that um, public transportation should never be used to marginalize any group. Can you talk about um, a little bit about when you heard about uh, these comments from St. Pete Beach and when you heard that uh, a fair might be implemented earlier than expected? 
Absolutely. So uh, please feel free to call me Monica. And okay. thank you for um, having me on today to, to continue sharing the light of what's going on to our unhoused residents of Pinellas County. Yeah, so I was made aware of this late last week. And through one of our continuum of care uh, board members. And so I reached out to Mr. Miller with the PSTA and, and spoke with him about what was going on. We began working on a press release with extreme caution of, you know, we we enjoy our partnership with the PSTA and, and they serve a vital component. And again, this is public transportation. These are public funds that support this, these, you know, people that work for the, this uh, organization. So we are very concerned when we heard about this is that it appears that the focus of this is to reduce the number of homeless people that are using our public beaches and our public transportation. You know, our we're not even going to get into the, the equity and fairness of only making this a, a paperless or moneyless transaction. Um, but the the fearful thing of us is that this does look like we are using homelessness as an issue that it is a social crime and homelessness is not illegal. Um, homelessness is a public health issue. It is not a public safety issue. And so we wanted to immediately get involved and ensure that all voices, including those voices that do not have the ability or capacity to speak for themselves in this type of venue were represented. That's our role within the community is to work with partners and work with stakeholders, including um, those in, within our lived experience advisory council to ensure that the messages that are getting out there about our neighbors is accurate. During the meeting, you said there are no signs on our beaches that I remember seeing that state you must own a home or be a renter to use our beach. You know, you were up there on the dais. Um, Sheriff Bob Goltieri got a lot of time up there. Do you feel like you were heard and the houses community was heard at that meeting on Wednesday? I would like to think that we were heard. Um, you know, I'm just as disgusted as is everyone within our continuum of people sleeping in front of publics. That should make everybody mad. But that person sleeping on the, in front of publics, it shouldn't make them mad because they're breaking what they think is a law. It should make them mad at, because this is where society has brought us. You know, I I love my community. I love the Tampa Bay area and, and St. Pete. And I, I love going to our beaches. And, you know, I, I remember being a college student back in the day in the 90s at, uh, at USF. And there was plenty of people that were taking showers that probably shouldn't have been taking showers on the beach at that time. Um, again, though, the, the folks say that are speaking loudly about this issue seem to keep bringing the focus to our homeless population. And with that, you know, if that's truly the case, then let's all work harder at fixing this public health issue and not criminalizing homelessness. Monica, I know that you had asked uh, to PSTA to reconsider the policy and invited members of PSTA's board and all concerned parties to participate in the discussion to, quote, effectively and fairly address the community's concerns and work towards a resolution. That doesn't seem to have happened, at least not yet. Are you still hoping that something could happen out that way? Or is this this decision the other day to go ahead and just raise the fares up, kind of kill that conversation? You know, I don't I don't think the the conversation is ever, you know, I'm I'm the glass is always full person. And so we we've actually already received an email from from Brad over at PSTA that we're all getting together on September 13th to continue this conversation. You know, I 
while this is very troublesome to me that this is happening to our, our unhoused neighbors, I think it sheds an important light on the fact that the homeless population in our community is rising. And, you know, public transportation is one issue that affects all homeless people, I would say, and that it, it impacts their ability to hopefully get employed and, and go to be housed. And, and it's a beautiful part of our community. And so I would say this conversation is definitely not closed. We need to continue having this conversation. We, we, we have to for our community. You know, we have to think of the thousands of people and the thousands of kids, especially, who are unhoused tonight in our, our community. It should bother everyone. So we need to continue the conversation. I don't think PSTA will remove their fare at this point. However, we are actively working with PSTA and, and other community partners and will continue to do so. Um, our, our work won't be done until we don't have such a homeless problem in our community. And if you're just joining us, this is WMNF Tampa, the skinny here. It's 1119 in the morning. You're listening to the voice of Homeless Leadership Alliance of Pinellas CEO, Dr. Monica Olesnik, reacting to news that St. Pete's Sunrunner would start implementing a fair a month earlier than planned after commissioners and constituents in St. Pete Beach complained about houseless riders um, coming to the beach. You know, uh, this conversation, uh, Monica, is interesting Thinking about the, what the sheriff said, he brought many facts in out of press release. Did you have any objection to the way he presented that or or some of the numbers that he brought uh, to the board meeting on Wednesday? You know, I would say um, every year the continuum of care in Pinellas County, we do what's called appointment time count. And it's required by HUD every other year, but we feel it's really important. And so... The sheriff was sharing some numbers from our report, but what I would say is that some of the numbers he was sharing, we have other numbers that I think that are, are more representative of the true homelessness in, in our community. And that number of unhoused, uh, sheltered and unsheltered, and when I say sheltered homeless, I'm talking about individuals who were in a shelter that evening. Um, that is a one moment count of numbers. And for anyone that is a data geek like myself, you know, numbers change on a, a daily basis. I can tell you today we have 125 families that are on a public waiting list to get into a shelter in Pinellas County. Um, we're working with hundreds of individuals across multiple, multiple social service agencies. Um, and so what I know is there were 3,700 plus children that were unsheltered and considered homeless uh, the day of our point in time count. And we had 2,144 people that either through a volunteer survey or through data collection, we were able to identify as homeless. It's disturbing. It should be disturbing. And what people don't seem to realize and what I would love, you know, the biggest message I can share is that homelessness is everyone's problem. And when we are a society that devalues some based on their income and where they reside, it, it puts further pressures on them to perform and be part of a society that they may not have known the rules for or have never been welcomed into before. So yeah, let's really talk about chronic homelessness. Let's really get to the heart of it. And let's really get to the issue of what's going on and not just say, well, let's keep homeless people off a bus and start a fair earlier than what was agreed upon. 
I want to go uh, let our listeners know if they want to participate in this conversation, they can either uh, write into us at dj at wmnf.org or call us at 813-239-9663. And maybe let's hear from some folks from St. Pete Beach, actually, because, and this was brought up, Ray, when we had, we talked about the Sunrunner back in June when we had an official from PSTA on this program, uh, that there's always been some negativity towards the Sunrunner going back years before it actually, of course, has only been around for less than a year now, right? June of 2019, St. Pete Beach Commissioners passed a resolution opposed to the Sunrunner coming onto the island and requested that the Federal Transit Administration put the project on hold. Uh, they had said that their opposition originated because they believed that PSTA had ignored many of their requests, such as a desire for bus ridership counts and for smaller buses to be utilized. Uh, and so this this kind of conflict, if you will, has you know, it's been rooted there for a bit before Sunrunner went into existence. And I believe there were some concessions in Ariel's reporting. She uh, mentioned that uh, there is no stopover at the Don Cesar. Mm-hmm. And I think that was originally planned. So that, that was a concession there. But also in the meeting on Wednesday, uh, PSTA kind of pointed out that, uh, yes, you know, they had those meetings, but also uh, Sunrunner and, and those roads are DOT mm-hmm. things. And um, at, the, at, at the end of the day, a bus's job is to move people around, as Dr. Uh, as Monica um, alluded to. You know, people from every economic uh, category and especially houses, folks use that bus probably to get to and from work as an essential thing to if you're going to use a right wing uh, jargon here, bootstrap themselves um, up and and out and and do these things. And we kind of in talking to people about this, uh, you know, something you pointed out, Dr. Lesnick, you know, one group is being singled out in public discourse now and to take kind of a, a bigger thing you alluded to this, you know homelessness being criminalized in the public discourse, um, you know, homelessness being an indicator of crime in, in, in the public discourse and all this chatter about public safety and, and keeping homeless people away from non-homeless people. Um, in the context of this, of discourse, like what happened this week, um, Monica, can you, can you talk about what that does in the grand scheme of things when we start to ask for ways to actually tackle this systemic problem of homelessness, maybe housing programs or other programs like that? Absolutely. You know, and there is there is definitely a national trend that is questioning many of the the wonderful programs and the wonderful housing uh, philosophies that are being used. So we follow a housing first approach and housing first. You know, you have to think of individuals as individuals and there are no absolutes. You know, there will always be people on the fringes of of all sides of society, good, bad, beautiful, you know, all sides, right? So we have to take the absolutes out. But what people need to think about is when we think about homelessness, if we're asking somebody who is working at two jobs, because we have many, many people who are working two jobs, many families who are facing economic issues, and they're not able to maintain their housing anymore. So what happens is we create these cycles of poverty and cycles of generational homelessness without really getting to the heart of what's what's going on. So for many people that say, you know, this housing first model is just enabling, well, it's not enabling. What happens is you have somebody who is living on the streets. How do we expect them to be doing well mentally, physically, um, or any other way if they don't have a place to lay their head every night. So what happens is we have amazing programs in this community where folks 
A, it's housing first. And then the supports come on top of that to help them become more well-rounded and understand and being able to participate in moving conversations forward and going from homeless to housed. You know, that's the goal is people becoming part of working in a meaningful part of society. You know, if we have more people working and more people housed, it's better for everyone. And so I've always been concerned and it's always bothered me, even as a, a, a child, that when people would see someone homeless on the street, they would make these assumptions that they're horrible people. And, you know, that's really not the case. And so I think, A, we need to stop generalizing the people that we see as homeless because it's more people are living paycheck to paycheck than have in a very long time. And Tampa Bay still has very high inflation. And so with that in mind, you know, let's look at how housing first works. Let's look how it works for our veterans, which in Pinellas, we have the second highest rate of homeless veterans in the country. And so the way these programs work to, to help people come out of homelessness is not enabling. It's what science, social scientists and those that have spent years looking at how people evolve and become part of society um, it's what we know is best practice. So just because people don't like best practice and what it, it means doesn't mean that it's not valid and doesn't mean that it works because it does work. And thinking about the sheriff and his, his comments on, on Wednesday, Monica, um, you know, at, at times I was skeptical of things he was saying and at times he did come off as, as a, a good faith elected official trying to find a solution to this and, and thinking about moving conversations forward and to touch a little bit on the semantics, I was just curious um, if that, that, about that phrase social crime, quote unquote, how damaging is it to progress to refer to as that or? or I think it's very dangerous. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have, serious crime taking place in, in this country and, and around the world. And homelessness is not a crime. It is a result of a myriad factors, social factors, economic factors, background factors, family factors, you know. Um, and so I, I get very concerned when I hear someone describing homelessness as a social crime because homelessness is a public health issue. It... Hey. It is an issue for all of us to, to be concerned about. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Monica Alesnik from the Pinellas Homeless Leadership Alliance. And I want to bring this up because I'm you know, curious, uh, Monica, what your thoughts about this, because this is all happening here in real time in Pinellas County, but this is not unique in the country. I, was, I saw an article this morning from the American Prospect written in last December about, and this is the story, it says that transit systems new to the fair free universe have to prepare for and weigh the next level problems posed by possible increases in riders who engage in behaviors that other riders find unacceptable. Uh, and they say that homelessness has become so pervasive for transit systems in recent years that the American Public Transportation Association, the Transit System Industry Group, holds regular sessions on homelessness at its annual conferences. A 2018 survey of about 50 transit agencies found that while most indicated that homeless people in the system affect ridership, the majority of the agencies did not allocate funding to deal with the issue. So we're dealing with this obviously here or dealing with it in our own way, you know, PSTA is right. But again, this issue of, uh, you know, no, not having, not charging for a fare, which obviously opens it up for, for all of us. Uh, and, 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 you know, PSTA has been boasting about these numbers, ridership numbers, uh, and it's a concept in other places in the country where they're trying to experiment with having uh, fareless uh, ridership. But uh, it seems like this has happened in other parts of the country, rubbing up 
unhouse people on transit. Can you talk about that at all? Absolutely. Um, it is a national issue. And I was in July, I was at the National Coalition and Homelessness Conference in Washington, D.C. And not only were the trends of the diminishing and, and strikes upon the housing first, there are strikes upon, you know, transportation. And this is something that is not new. It's not, like you said, it's not something isolated to Pinellas County or even Florida. Um, but I think one of the things that you're seeing is as the economy has is, is been challenged, more people are probably using public transportation. You know, I'm a, we're a one car family our, ourselves, you know, and, and so we're huge users of public transportation. And so I think you might have more people doing that. So more people are, are potentially seeing homeless riders. And so it's, it's disturbing because again, this is public transportation and transportation paid by taxpayer dollars. And just as I have said, you know, there's not a sign on the beach and there's not a sign on any bus that says no homeless allowed. Um, and if it, it ever went, you know, we'd be very, very, very concerned if, if that's the trend that ever happened. You know, we know PSTA is a great partner and then they are at the table when we have conversations with our continuum of care. But it is a very concerning trend nationally that we are seeing um, about the new threat of, of homeless individuals using public transportation. And Dr. Alezik, I know you kind of mentioned you had 1130. Um, I don't know if that's a very hard uh, stop for you. I, I kind of had one or two more questions if you have oh, time. No, it's fine. I have a few more minutes. Not um, a problem. Thinking about this meeting that you're going to have in the middle of, of next month, what are your hopes for that meeting? Like, what would you like instead for these officials that you're going to meet with and these leaders uh, to do about uh, the unhoused and maybe, like, what are your hopes for that September 13th meeting, I think you said? Yeah, um, my hope is that we can really start moving the needle. You know, I a lot of people talk about, you know, let's change this, let's change this, let's work this, but we, there's lots of talk. And so I'm hoping that when we all come to, together on the 13th, you know, we are all there with the common goal of devising real solutions that'll impact and, and help our homeless population. Um, I know that we're all going in with that intention. And I think that with that intention, we'll be able to hopefully come up with some strong strategies that we can use to not only hopefully bring more funds to our community to address this issue, but help educate the population and the general public on what homelessness really looks like. You know, we're working on an ad campaign now to show the true face of homelessness in Pinellas County. You know, it's, it's, it's moms, it's dads, it's kids, it's grandparents. And so what we're hoping out of the 13th is that we can start really moving the needle forward. And I'm thinking back um, to 1972, a Supreme Court decision that ruled that there is freedom to travel throughout the U.S. that has been long recognized as a basic right under the Constitution. I think the court was talking about interstate travel, but I'm curious in your um, conversations with um, Brad Miller and some other advocates in the community, did, did that come up at all? Um, some kind of local, you know, freedom, you know, of, of movement? No, we haven't. Um, that hasn't been something that anybody has spoken to me about as of yet. Um, so no, it hasn't been approached with us at all. Okay, and if uh, you're just joining us here on WMNF Tampa, that has been the voice of Homeless Leadership Alliance of Pinellas CEO, Dr. Monica Alesnik. Uh, Dr. Or Monica, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope to hear from you soon, maybe follow up after that meeting. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Um, and if anybody needs any more information, we're at PinellasHomeless.org. And thank you uh, both for and all of you for having me on today. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye.
All right, great. All right, again, if you're just tuning in right now, that was a discussion about the situation of PSTA and St. Pete Beach. Uh, now, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, we have another month now. You still can ride Sunrunner for free in Pinellas, going to the beach from downtown. But that's going to change uh, on October 1. It was going to be November 1. When we talked to officials from PSTA uh, back earlier in the summer, they were optimistic that maybe that could go beyond that. Uh, that's not going to be discussed at all right now to keep that, you know. Yeah, there's. I mean, there was money proposed, I think, right. in the fiscal year 2024 budget to buy back some of those And, and the thing is, by the way, uh, you mentioned it briefly, but uh, Ken Welch, St. Pete Mayor Ken Welch, has been very, the St. City of St. Petersburg has been very uh, uh, supportive of Sunrunner and has given financial uh, contributions, and that may stop now because uh, Ken Welch was against what they did here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's going to be a big question mark going forward. Is is if these funds were you know thought about or maybe considered in this upcoming budget, is that discussion even going to come up? So I, I am curious to find out um, who will be at that September thirteenth meeting right. that Doctor Elesnik was yeah, talking definitely. about, and, and whether or not it'll be on the public record. <laughs> Yeah. Like, who well, no, know. you got We got to believe that it's going to be. It's Sunshine State, Sunshine, uh, you know, press laws here. So uh, we've got a few minutes before we go to uh, talk to David Hogg, which I'm looking forward to doing in a couple minutes. But uh, why don't we talk? I know I listened to you guys last week. I was in New York City last week, but I was listening on my phone, the WMNF app, uh, when you hey. guys were talking about uh, the debate coming that was, of course, on Tuesday, yes. uh, Wednesday night, right? And the uh, at that time, the big story was about never back down. The uh, the all those pages on the, online about what how Ron DeSantis was going to go about his. Strategy here, so uh, I, I take that you saw the debate. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because I also the whole time watching the debate and being on Twitter, you were you were very active there. I was yeah. thinking, I don't think anybody's watching this except for all my liberal friends. <laughs> Did, uh, is that how it felt to you? I mean, you you have a more wide swath of people yeah. you see online. Oh, you, well, you mean like uh, in terms of you you thought that? Like, do you feel like any of your Republican sources or colleagues, uh, you know, not colleagues, you know, you know what I mean? Like we're yeah. watching this actual debate. Oh, I think like, Republicans were, were totally into it. Okay. I, I think. You know, I, 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 you know, we saw the ratings, 12.8 million, which uh, basically when it was, it was less than when Donald Trump participated in debates eight years ago, but is more, more comparable. But look, in television these days, 12.8 million is a big deal, right, with the way that uh, cutting the cord and all that is. Uh, it was a national event. Uh, I, I, we wrote last week, yesterday in our, and on the Florida Phoenix, basically the mixed, quote unquote, mixed reviews for Ron DeSantis. Actually, some polls have come out and he's done decently, even though the, I think the consensus is that he really, uh, he was unscathed. He didn't really do much. He was, I think the, the his worst moment, what do you think yeah, about this? I, mean, I think we're going to be on the same page when here. When he did not raise his hand or he looked, no, he did raise his hand, but he delayed. It was weird. It was, I when they asked, screen glitched. When the moderator asked, I think it was Brett Bayer asked the candidates, if President, former President Donald Trump is convicted of a crime, uh, would you consider a, would you pardon him? And uh, as we all know, ultimately six of the eight hands went up of the eight candidates there. But Ron DeSantis looked left, right, looked right, and looked left, and then kind of moved his hand up. He did ultimately do that, but I, that has been noted. I think that was probably his the lowest Trump moment. Very, the Trump team was very quick to jump on that, uh, right, guys? Well, of course, you know, they're ready to jump on everything. They, 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 they're, they're merciless, of course. The, the Trump and, team. Did you say, what's the question? Whether or not he would pardon, or was it what they would support him um, on the ticket? No, no, it was about pardoning. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it was about supporting. Uh, now, uh, it is interesting, of course. Vivek Ramaswamy, kind of the, the, the man who emerged, although of course Nikki Haley also getting great reviews, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, but Ramaswamy was the one who got attacked. Ron DeSantis was not attacked. Uh, 
And again, I guess if you go by this, see, I, again, you, you, some would say that, okay, he kind of treaded, treaded water. He didn't lose any ground uh, and maybe held him out there. But, you know, I, every moment counts here. And that was, that was considered the biggest moment of this campaign to date. Uh, but I, I don't know. Ben, your thoughts? Did you watch any of it? Yeah, I watched just a little bit. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't watch the whole thing, but I did catch the dailies um, sort of analysis yeah. uh, after the fact. And, and you know, as they played the clips, some of the sort of, um, you know, the more searing insults and so forth was what was what I heard. It sounded like it had like a, a Jerry Springer sort of background mm-hmm. track. And I wonder if that was the case throughout the debates. In other words, there would be like some sort of biting insult from one of the candidates and everyone would say, Ooh, you know, right. And I, it made me wonder if there were moments of calm or if that was sort of the, the, the tenor of the entire thing. And is this what, what we've come to when it comes to debates? Is it just about who can get the best dig in on the other candidate. I think we're a good ideas exchange. I think we have eight people up there or ten people up there. It becomes more of a free fall and it's more entertainment than it is a classic two person. Think about the debates. The last one probably most people afford to watch last year was the Charlie Crist Ron DeSantis debate right before the election, uh, if you'll recall that. And uh you know that was I mean when you have just two people up there, it it, it usually doesn't it can of course, but it usually doesn't get raucous like it did the other night. And if you have a live audience that also can contributes to that, I believe. We did see this a lot in the 15-16 cycle. Donald Trump, you know, part of his style is to be this insult king, right? And so that leads to cheers and jeers and people jumping on each other. Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence, I thought was so interesting. He led, by the way, in the number of minutes. Uh, you know, you could read about the breakdown of how many minutes each candidate got up there. Uh, DeSantis was fourth behind, uh, but Mike Pence was number one. And frankly, it's because he interrupted a lot, okay? It, you know, if you go by the uh, decorum and rules, Mike, uh, you know, Pence was not really proper in a lot of things he did. But then again, he's really in desperate straits, right? And he really wanted to get his message across. Uh, he was super aggressive. Joe Biden, if you recall, remember the 2012 debate between Joe Biden and Paul Ryan, the vice presidential debate? This came after the first debate of the cycle between Obama and Mitt Romney, where Obama was horrible, if you recall that. Uh, I don't know if you guys would do that, but he was. He was, yeah. he was off his game and Romney and everybody was freaking out a little bit. And so the pressure was on Joe Biden for the Democrats to kind of, you know, get it back, as it were. And Biden, I remember that debate. I think people thought Biden did well, maybe better, quote, you know, quote unquote, better than Paul Ryan. But what I remembered about Biden in that debate was super aggressive, just jumping it all over the place in a way that was kind of like not great, you know, kind of really hot for the television medium. But it, it in that case, it was a two person thing. And, and it was that aggressiveness and we saw this again with Ramaswamy, who became a kind of a bit of a emerged out of this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, if you if you went there, I will say this, though, right, because the, the absence of Trump. And again, I'd love to hear from anybody, our listeners or, or you guys, too. The absence of Trump, you had a lot of policy. Whatever you want to say about the debate. There was one question asked about Donald Trump, the one we just mentioned a moment Correct. ago. The rest was and, and DeSantis got all like, why are we even talking about this? Hey, it was a one time. And, and if you remember, Brett Baer came back at him and said, well, sir, he is leading you by 30 points right now. It's, I think we can ask this question. But um, it was it was laden with policy and it, and it wasn't. Uh, you know, all the stuff about Trump's uh, indictments, for example. Correct. Yeah, I, I think the discourse was 
was good last night. It's interesting to hear you say, we say DeSantis was fourth in terms of yeah. um, talking time. It seemed like in the wake of that leak, uh, he really did kind of stick to some scripted yeah, moments. Yeah, he definitely did. He definitely seemed corralled. The very first question was about uh, that song, uh, oh, Rich, that Man, Rich Man. <laughs> and, he, and he didn't he answer it. Right he just went off on this. His, he already had it down. Like, this I is mean, what I'm going to say. You are talking about a guy who loves to capitalize on the uh, like uh, controversy du jour and turn it into a soundbite. And I think he, the governor did do that effectively. And I think if it was a lot of people first seeing the governor that night, he, he never said the word woke, by the way. He wasn't unhinged. A, a lot of things, you know, changed for the governor. Will, will it play out for him? You know, I, I, I don't I don't know. Um, Mitch, no. you think that was on purpose? Yeah, yeah I it do. Had to be. Uh, the, yeah, because we've heard this and uh, from forget about what never backed down uh, said the the the, the, the critic the conservative critics and the like who who are rooting for him they basically said uh, governor, we know what you did in Florida. Okay, I mean that is your brand, and you don't really need to keep on talking about that. What are you going to do for, for for the Americans uh, if you're elected? What's what's the future? What's instead of just talking about what you've done? I think he's really. We know this. We live this. We talked about this on this program this last year about all the incredible legislation that went down, historic legislation, conservative legislation, that if you're a conservative in Florida, you, you, you must have had an orgasm that all, throughout the year because, I mean, whether it was on uh, labor, uh, knocking down unions or immigration, he had a, a greatest hits package. But that's only taken him so far, right? And again, Trump that's isn't a unique figure. Notes. It's fascinating because that's the whole motif so far. Um, look what I've built guess what I can do for America? I can make America Florida. Here's the blueprint. Uh, so if they're telling him, move on, like give us something else, uh, what do you got to scrap the game plan? Well, I, Ben, I think that's that's true. We, and again, America is not Florida, and, and it's like, okay, it's great what you did down here. And and look for conservative some for some conservatives, they think Florida is like utopia, right? And and we've talked about this again. We had uh, Jake Hoffman up here a couple weeks ago. A lot of young conservatives have flocked to Tampa and to Florida and to Miami since the coronavirus. So they love it, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the country does. And even you know, a Republican country. And again, uh, some of our Republican listeners, even a couple minutes here before we go to David Hogg. Uh, uh, you know, if you want to call it, or, or do we have Dave? Okay, we'll talk about this. But anyway, so yeah, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about this. Obviously, we've got four months till to the Iowa actual caucus happening. So there's a lifetime away. Donald Trump, of course, we all saw the, the, the mugshot. And I keep on saying that's a wild card, although I guess people consider to think that it's not in terms of like, that's not going to affect Republican voters and whether or not they'll decide to vote for him or not. Let's talk about for Nikki Haley for a moment, though, because yeah. Nikki Haley was uh, very effective. I, I thought she was loose on not even saying where she's at on abortion, for example, but she chided her fellow Republicans on saying what we're doing isn't working on abortion because it's not. Um, and, but also uh, in terms of spending the like, she was critical of fellow Republicans. She went after uh, Ramaswamy, as we all know, saying you don't know anything about foreign policy. Um, and I think that she, uh, again, I think she my, this per, this reviewer's uh, opinion did really well, but then you go say, okay, was well, that will affect the polls at all? Though will she go anywhere? Because right now she's nowhere, basically in the polls. Which is why she says she doesn't care about polls. <laughs> well, you know, but I, but if you recall, by the way, recent cycles, Herman Cade at, at one point led the Republican race in 2011, 2012. Uh, ben Carson, I believe, in 2015, 2016 did. So the fact that Ramaswamy is getting some love right now. He's not going to be the nominee. Now, look, he looked, I think but, he was trying out for, for Trump's VP. Well, he, he, I think he won that if that's all yeah. he was doing. Uh, if, and that's what Trump, but again, it's up to Donald Trump to decide if he, again, is the nominee, that's who he wants to take. But obviously, because this guy 
uh, is betrothed to Trump in terms of like making sure not to be anything critical about Donald Trump. Why are you running against him, though? I will say he was the most interesting guy on the debate for me. I mean, you were kind of drawn to him. Um, the comes his stories. He did get a lot of flack for plagiarizing an Obama line about being a skinny guy with a funny name. I mean, I think that was that funny was so obvious. I, I can't Chris believe Christie. Chris Christie, the first one to say something about that. That was so blatant. Well, Chris Christie kind of seemed like oh, one he was of the dude. More, yeah, he was like, bummed out. He was. I don't. Yeah, well, I don't know. Did he? I, he could have been affected by the booze, but you know, like why was he? Like everybody thought he'd come out on fire. He did have that one great chat GPT line about Ramaswamy. And and a lot of times, and by the way, if you want to chime in, you can call in 813 We are waiting for David Hogg right now. But yes, by the way, yeah. And, and guys, um, not to cut you short, but uh, I think David just joined us. Okay. So Ben can yeah, take so it away. Uh, thanks. Our, uh, our next guest was uh, thrust uh, onto the national stage in 2018 after a, a classmate uh, shot up. Marjorie Stone, Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. You know the story. Um, in, in the five years since, and by the way, I remember in the days after, uh, in the days after this happened, seeing this young man's face on the television and seeing his composure, and sort of thinking to myself, this might be uh, a leader to watch. This might be a a, a, a person who takes the stage uh, uh, for some time. But in the five years since, and especially during uh, the Donald Trump administration, David Hogg has witnessed. Um, uh, his peers, a generation of young people, find their political voices. He's uh, seen the rise of movements, uh, women's march, um, march for our lives, which he helped found. Um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, these are these are youth movements that have taken off uh, in the past five years. Now, uh, Hogg and others want to see even more young people actually get elected to public office, and to that end, he has launched. Uh, a, a PAC uh, called Leaders We Deserve, and he can tell us about this, a hybrid political action committee that backs candidates under 35 years old who are running for federal office and under 30 years old running for state office. David, uh, welcome to The Skinny on WMNF. Thank you so much for having me. Your group says Generation Z and millennials make up 45% of the electorate but only hold 21% of state legislature seats. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, you know, we have all, we have plenty of young people across the country who obviously care about politics, uh, as we know from having the highest peak voter turnouts in American history for the past three elections. Um, but unfortunately, elected office may, uh, remains uh, very hard to reach for many young people, especially underprivileged young people. And that's really why we're doing this. Our special emphasis is on states like Florida, uh, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, states that are leading red, but we think with the right investment, you know, can um, be brought to a more uh, morally just place uh, by investing in these young people now, by showing them that there's somebody in office like Justin Jones, who's on our advisory board, um, that understands the anxiety of what it's like going through a school computer drill. And it's not about being against old versus young. I want to make that very clear. It's about being about the fact that, you know, we need people in office who understand that anxiety I just mentioned about school shooter drills and the anxiety of not knowing if our children are going to have an inhabitable planet because we got to get to work today to address those issues tomorrow. Some uh, 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 members with energy like Justin Jones, of course, and also uh, somebody closer to home right down the street uh, here, uh, first term representative Maxwell Frost. A Democrat yes. uh, from uh, Orlando is a friend of yours. Tell us, tell us about him. And also, did you work on that campaign? I did. I did. I'm actually working. So Maxwell was a uh, young person with March for Our Lives. He was our first national organizing director before he. That was his job before he was in Congress. 
Um, and his job is helping to turn out young people across the state, uh, like Florida, across uh, the South, across all parts of the country to help vote for gun violence prevention policies. Um, Maxwell got involved in gun violence prevention when he, when he was just 15 years old after the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, and he's been working on it ever since. And, you know, he called me up and asked me to help with this campaign. And I said, you know, Maxwell, I don't trust most or really any politician, but I don't see you as a politician. I see you as a friend. So, you know, I went in and helped. Uh, support his campaign very early on and I actually ended up raising him $380,000 in his first two quarters, which, you know, helped get him, you know, some of that early momentum uh, and credibility to the point that he ended up defeating two former members of Congress. And I think it was eight other people in that race as a 25 year old um, young Afro-Cuban person and somebody who's not super well politically connected. Mind you, his parents are not politicians um, or very super politically active by any means. He's just a young uh, middle class person. How do you go about, how does the group go about picking races, David? Yeah, so really the races that we look at predominantly are uh, what we call open blue seed primaries. So basically races like Maxwell's that are um, pretty much uh, not guaranteed, but very likely going to go to a Democrat. Um, and we help run people in those races where the incumbent Democrat is not running again. Uh, we're not here to try to challenge incumbents, um, specifically Democratic incumbents, that is. Uh, we're here to help bring in the next generation when somebody like Val Demings is, you know, running for a Senate or running for a higher office or just retiring um, so we can bring in more young people into office in the first place. Because we understand the need uh, to have people like Jan Tchaikovsky, uh, people like uh, President Biden and others in office that have, you know, decades of experience that know how to get things done. But we also understand the need uh, to bring in young people to make sure that we are represented in the first place. So. Uh, that's part of how we got Maxwell elected as the first Gen V member of uh, Congress. Hey, David, this and is he's on our advisory board too. Question here: um, You obviously know this because you're on the ground, and, and we see this in our our reporting here. There are a lot of young people active in, in different kinds of organizations, whether protesting things locally, being activists, and organizing. For you, and as you get this pack off the ground. Who is the ideal person to bring up um, from those local organizing groups? What are they, you know, what's the, their profile and what are the obstacles they face? And how is your group planning to elevate these people and get them ready uh, for those races and those seats the, that you mentioned? Yeah, well, that's a great question. The type of candidates that we really look for um, are young people who are first and foremost, you know, what we call morally just leaders that care that have showed a dedication and commitment to, you know, protecting kids in schools uh, from gun violence, advocating um, to fight for the issues that our generation cares about, like uh, preventing, uh, reducing the effects of climate change, uh, reducing gun violence, increasing, uh, you know, protecting voting rights uh, as well and getting them involved. So really what we try to do is uh, look at movements like March for Our Lives, look at movements like the, the Sunrise Movement, uh, the Movement for Black Lives and the Women's Movement um, that have come up or had new chapters over the past four years and help take some of the, the most courageous, passionate uh, young people from those movements and help get them into office, especially at the state level. You know, I think it's easy to forget that, you know, the national media pays so much attention to Congress all the time uh, because it's big and it's shiny and everyone thinks about it. But really most of the bill, most of the worst bills that are being passed in this country, whether it's, you know, a six week abortion ban, whether it's permitless carry, you know, which is the opposite of what many responsible gun owners like my father want. Um, the places are getting passed, they're not in Congress, they're getting passed in places like Tallahassee or Austin or other state capitals around the country. So really the type of young person we look at are the young people that rise up from uh, as a counter reaction to those horrible bills being passed and helping show them that, you know, it's not just about being on the outside of politics. You know, uh, it's, it's about being a marathon, not a sprint. 
And it's like a marathon and that you need to use your left and your right foot. You got to be on the inside and the outside. And I can't tell you the difference it makes not only to have a movement on the outside holding people accountable to make sure no matter uh, who a politician is, that they do the right thing. Uh, it makes a real difference when we have good people in office uh, like you know, the civil rights leader, John Lewis, like people like Justin Jones or Justin Pearson or Maxwell Frost, or even somebody like Avery Bishop, who is the first woman of color uh, to win Miss Texas. And now she's running uh, in Dallas uh, in a uh, more competitive seat. Um, And she's the first candidate that we've uh, endorsed because we really believe it's so important that young people see themselves reflected in government by an experienced and professional young person like Avery Bishop, who also was a legal advocate and law school graduate and intellected to be the first uh, Filipino person in the Texas state legislature. David, if I could ask you, I know you've done a lot of work, of course, over the last five years on uh, federal gun safety efforts. I want to ask you about the legislation that did pass last year in the wake of the Uvalde shooting, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Some said it didn't do that much, but others thought it was very significant. It had been the most significant uh, gun safety bill in in decades. What, What are your thoughts about that legislation? Well, I think it's it's possible for both those things to be true. Uh, it is significant in that it is the first piece of gun legislation to be passed in 30 years, uh, but it's also true that it didn't go far enough. But, you know, it's progress. Even, it, you know, the way that I look at, look at it is, you know, is that bill going to end gun violence today? The answer is no. But even if it stops one more school shooting from happening, and there have been many instances of, of people that, you know, had a history of uh you know, violence and a, a number of red flags that should not have enabled them uh, or should have prevented them from being able to buy a weapon like an AR-15, where that law has been used to prevent them from buying it. You know, even if we stop one person from dying from gun violence or one school shooting, that bill is still significant in the first place. And is it as much as I would have liked it to have been? No, but it is progress because note this, there were 10 Republicans pretty much that had to vote for that bill and they did. And not a single one of them, not a single person who voted for the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act uh, on the left or the right lost their election specifically because they voted on that bill. And that shows us that, you know, gun control is not the third rail of American politics anymore. Doing nothing about gun violence, fighting with the NRA is the third rail of American politics now. Just like at the other night with the uh, debate that happened uh, with the GOP leaders, you know, in the past, when asked about how they plan to fight crime or how they, you know, plan to deal with uh, gun violence, they would go immediately and tout how proud of a member they are of the NRA and that they have an A rating uh, from the NRA. Not a single one of them, at least from the parts of the debate that I watched, uh, talked about that. And that shows the significance of the decades of work that was put in by uh, parents who lost their children to gun violence, young people who lost friends and families to gun violence, um, and the work more recently that young Americans and Gen Z have put in uh, to culminate in the highest youth voter turnouts in American history uh, to pass that legislation, not to mention the legislation that we passed in Florida, right? right. Uh, a, Republic, a Republican state right now where, you know, the law that we passed after Parkland has been predominantly used most by Republican sheriffs uh, to disarm people that are risk themselves and others. And it's been used over 6,000 times. And the way that law, that law works, for those that don't know, is basically if you make a threat against yourself or, or somebody else and the police think that you're risk, you can have your guns taken away temporarily, but there is a right to counsel and due process. The idea being that, you know, if there's an instance like somebody like the shooter at my high school uh, who threatened to shoot up my school multiple times and was still able to legally own his AR-15 as a 19-year-old, um, that we could have used that law to help disarm that individual. We even used it to help disarm somebody who threatened to kill my own mother. Um, so there can be people that say that laws don't work, but ultimately that law has been used a, num- a very significant number of times across our state. 
And if I could just one, one other question here, and that is you mentioned that the 2018 law, a uh, gun control law here in Florida. And interestingly, you know, I, I think you saw this this year in the session. There was a movement to rate part one of the provisions to raise the age back from uh, lower, I should say, from 21 to 18 to buy long guns. And that that did not go. I think in the Senate, it didn't go anywhere. It would move in the House. But uh, Republicans basically said, we don't want to do that. So that that law is still staying intact, which is you know interesting because it is still very much a, a gun friendly culture uh, up there in Tallahassee. Yeah, I mean, it's because they know that, you know, there's no reason why a 19 year old uh, should be able to buy uh, an AR-15. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that the fact that, you know, in the state that historically their age to buy handguns has been so much higher, but not to buy a weapon, a semi-automatic rifle like the AR-15 or the AR-10, for example, is, is crazy, frankly. Um, and I think they recognize that even up there in Tallahassee. And they also know that, you know, uh, there's going to be a major amount of backlash if they lower the voting, if they lower the, sorry, uh, the, the age to buy a gun in the first place. And also there could be blood on their hands because frankly, should somebody, I don't think somebody who can't buy a beer uh, should be able to buy an AR-15 uh, in the first place. And David, I know we're getting short on time here. We probably have a minute and a half. You know, it's not lost on me that you're 23 years old. I mean, you are, by all means, a, a young person who's been through a lot. You've been the subject of a, a lot of conspiracy theories and and things like that. But you're you're 23. Like, this is normally a, a question that Ben asks. But like, how are you doing um, right now? And and what do you tell these candidates as you kind of steal them up to uh, go for these runs? Uh, I'm doing really good. You know, I. I have, it's a challenge on a day-to-day basis when we see, you know, shooting after shooting happen again and again. But the thing that I like most about the work we're doing in Leaders We Deserve is that it gives me something that is often hard to find in gun violence prevention work where we're trying to, you know, pass stronger gun laws. Um, and mind you, I say all this, and I, I, I shoot guns uh, regularly. I was on the shooting uh, team at my college, and I, I, I did seat and trap shooting very often. Um, so I know the power behind a lot of these weapons. Um, Really what I like about the work we're doing with Leaders We Deserve is it gives me hope. You know, it can be very hard and daunting to be in a place like Tallahassee where it feels like democracy goes to die. But when we see young people, uh, people like Anna Eskamani, for example, that are up there, uh, when we see people like Chevron Jones and so many others that are leading that fight, it gives you an amount of hope because it's a lot easier to help change one seat than it is to convince an entire legislature to pass, uh, you know, a gun law. But if people are interested in supporting our work, I would ask them to please donate 5 or $10 a month, whatever they can, at leaderswedeserve.com because um, we're funded mostly by grassroots support from people like Flor- uh, around Florida and states around the country. So leaderswedeserve.com is a website to go to if you'd like to support us. And that's been the voice of David Hogg. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, good luck on your, on your new endeavor, and thanks for making time for us here on WMNF. Yeah, thank you. And Ben, we are running out of time here, Mitch. Uh, Once again, we have hit the 12 o'clock mark here on WMNF Tampa. You've been listening to The Skinny. Welcome back to Mitch Perry. Really good to have you back in studio. My name is... I'm sorry, Ray, before you close out, we should say, you know, we we talked, uh, David talked about Maxwell Frost, uh, the young Gen Z congressman. We hope to have Maxwell on the show next week, so please tune in for that. Yeah, we'll be back next week. Joe Allen Schilke is in Studio One with Art in Your Ear. On behalf of Skip Sassy, Irene, our phone operator, my name is Ray Roa, thank you so much for joining us and for listening to WMNF Tampa.